1835, Charles Darwin and his crew aboard the Beagle reached the Galapagos Islands, an archipelago of 13 islands, roughly 600 miles to the west of Ecuador. When they began exploring the plants and animals on these islands, they were astounded to find animals that shared a likeness to those they had just seen in South America, and yet utterly unique to those specific islands. And as they explored each island, they even found variation from island to island among the Galapagos. The most famous example are Darwin's finches. The finches Darwin discovered on the Galapagos Islands were very similar to the finches they had just seen along the western shore of South America, and yet they were endemic, which means uniquely different and only found on the Galapagos. Their beaks varied in shape and size depending on what food supply was available on each island. On some of the islands where large nuts grew in abundance, those finches developed large beaks with powerful jaws that could crack the nuts. On other islands in the Galapagos, there was an abundance of fruit trees, and those finches developed beaks that looked a lot like a parrot's beak. Utterly incredible. Still, on other islands in the Galapagos, there were marshier areas with an abundance of bugs, and those finches developed long uh, predatory beaks that could easily snack these bugs out of the sky. Scientists speculate that long ago, standard finches from South America were carried on strong winds or a storm to the west and got stranded on the Galapagos Islands. Whatever the vehicle of their arrival, these finches and like so many other plants and animals on the Galapagos adapted to their surroundings in order to survive. When was the last time you heard an Easter sermon at a Christian church open with a story about Charles Darwin? <laughs> now it is April Fool's Day, but I'm not trying to make a joke this evening. At one point in history, The finches on the Galapagos were just like all the rest. But then something happened. Happened to them. The world that they knew was utterly altered. Their reality shifted. And they had to adapt to this new reality in order to survive. So extreme were these adaptations that even though they still belonged to the family of finches, they actually became a different species. Easter is the day we recognize that something happened nearly 2,000 years ago. On the third day, after Jesus was crucified, dead and buried. Something fundamentally shifted in the universe that changed the course of history and moved the disciples of the resurrected Jesus to live differently, to worship differently, to treat each other differently, to live utterly other than they ever had before. It has been the experience of Easter people, disciples of Jesus, ever since. Over the course of two millennia, billions of people have have had their lives altered by encounters with the risen and reigning Jesus. The thing is about the resurrection is it's not one of those secondary doctrines of Christianity, like whether or not you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, or the debate whether or not electric basses should be on the worship team. I mean, there's no debate there anyway. Yes, of course, Jesus played bass, I'm sure of it. <laughs> the resurrection is the event that Christians across all, all shapes and sizes, from all points of history, from all around the world, hold to be foundation foundational to our faith, to our whole lives, our whole future hinges upon it. 
The Apostle Paul wrote, if corpses can't be raised, if Christ wasn't because he was dead, and if Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and the resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, then we are a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. Now, that's a big statement. That is a big statement in a scientific world like we live in. If our very hope of new life rests on whether or not Jesus rose from the grave, then it seems to me like that is an event worth talking about. Let's read one of the accounts of the Easter story from Luke's gospel, particularly chapter 22, verses 1 through 12. And if you're able, I'll have you stand with me as we read the the gospel. Now on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the, the living among the dead? And he's not here. He's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and all to the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women were with them, telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they wouldn't believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, and stooping in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what has happened. Lord, as we re-engage with this story, yet another Resurrection Sunday, don't let it fall upon our deaf ears, or our calloused hearts, or our attitudes that say we've heard this before. But may we be in awe and wonder as these first disciples. And may it change us deep within our bones forever. Amen. You may be seated. The story is recorded by the physician and historian Dr. Luke. And it's just one story and one episode of the story amongst a larger whole. All four gospel accounts in the Bible, tell the story of people going to the tomb to mourn and care for the body of Jesus. We know from multiple accounts that a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea got permission from Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and he had Jesus' body taken down from the cross and placed in his own personal tomb in Jerusalem. Now let me just point out a few details of credibility from this story. Scholars of biblical literature used different metrics to determine whether or not a story is plausible or whether it's authentic. Two of those metrics are things like multiple attestation and embarrassment. So the first one is multiple 
attestation is a story or a detailed theme reported among different sources and authors. The same story, the same thing, reported by different sources and different authors. We have multiple attestation that Joseph of Arimathea put Jesus in his own tomb. All four Gospels agree to the fact that it was women who first saw the empty tomb and proclaimed this news to the disciples. Which brings us to the second criteria, the criteria of embarrassment. In the ancient world, historians rarely told stories about their own people or their own culture that were embarrassing or dishonorable. For example, if you just happen to learn ancient Egyptian and hieroglyphics, you would read their history, and as you would, of course, and if you were to read an ancient Egyptian historian, you would never read about Egypt ever having problems or having been conquered by anyone. It was as if they, why aren't they still around? I don't know, but, uh, but they would never write about it, okay? That's probably why you don't hear about the exodus from an Egyptian historian, okay? But oftentimes in the Bible, a story about God creating, loving, and redeeming humans in creation, you see embarrassing story after embarrassing story. You see Peter saying foolish things, denying Jesus three times. You see Jesus dying on the cross. What kind of savior dies on the cross, and you see this story of Joseph of Arimathea, who's portrayed as a righteous man, even though he was a religious leader and part of the Sanhedrin, part of the council that condemned Jesus to death. That's embarrassing. If you're going to think up of a new, a new religion and to put people like that in it is unlikely. And then you have women as the sole primary witnesses to the empty tomb. If you wanted to make up a story that would convince ancient readers of the historical validity of a supernatural event, you would not invent that story using women as witnesses. Because back in those days and in that culture, women were not even allowed to be witnesses in a court of law, let alone reputable witnesses to a supernatural event. So, so then why tell the story in this way? Well, the evidence suggests that the story is told this way because that's how it actually happened. And what is it that these witnesses tell us? That when they got to the tomb, they saw the stone rolled away and that the body of Jesus was gone. To add further evidence to this, to this point, Peter reported that when he looked in the empty tomb, not only was Jesus' body missing, but the grave cloths were there, lying in the same position that they would have been to cover the body, only the body wasn't there. So it, it was almost as if, I'm speculating, that Jesus' body almost rose out of those cloths as he was laying there, and they just stayed the way his body was. Now, skeptics over the years, even today, have posited two main theories. There's lots of branch theories that come off of these two main ones, but two main theories about what could have happened to Jesus' body. Why was it missing in the tomb? The first is the swoon theory, or some form of that. At its core, this theory suggests that Jesus, he was never really dead, and that he somehow escaped the tomb and ran off to live somewhere, probably India, as the theory goes. Now, hardly anyone, even the most jaded scholars, hold to that theory anymore, and there's good reasons for that. One reason is the medical evidence of what happens to a body when it's crucified. Before crucifixion, victims are flogged with a horrible whip akin to a cat of nine tails. And on a whip like this, there are multiple leather tassels, 
And tied at the end of those leather tassels are lead balls and shards of bone. The lead balls are intended to bruise the person's flesh so that blood comes to the surface of the flesh. The bone is intended to tear the flesh so that once the, uh, the contusion is on the outside, it bleeds more and it hurts more. The body, and the body of Jesus and the body of anyone who is being crucified by a Roman soldier would be in shock well before being affixed to the cross in the first place. Jesus was then crucified next to two thieves, but pre-crucifixion, his beatings were even more severe than the two thieves. Remember, he had been beaten by Herod's private guards and then returned to Pilate. Then Pilate wanted to set Jesus free, and he said, I'll tell you what, I'll set him free, but I'll beat him for you first. So then Pilate had Jesus beat. But then the crowd said, no, crucify him. At which time then Pilate would say, okay, go through the process of crucifixion, which includes more flogging. Three separate beatings for Jesus. Now, because the Sabbath was approaching, the Jewish leaders were asked to have the bodies removed from the crosses so they could care for them without being defiled on the Sabbath day. So they inspected to see if they were dead yet. The two criminals weren't quite dead yet, and so they broke their legs so that they would suffocate almost instantly. When they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. But just to make sure, one of the Roman soldiers pierced his side, and out from his side flowed blood and water. If you pierced my side, it would hurt really bad. Blood and water would not come out. That's because I'm still alive when you pierce me. But when someone dies from shock, water often surrounds the cardiac tissue. And a coroner today would tell you, as multiple have, that a dead person in shock on a cross would experience a similar event of blood and water coming out. That's a medical reason. I haven't even gotten to the others, uh, like the fact that there's historical record of over 21 different texts outside of the Bible that record the death of Jesus, not to mention on top of those over uh, dozens of accounts of his death in the so-called non-canonical gospels. And so we have lots of accounts of Jesus dying. Jesus died. The theories of Jesus breaking out of the tomb and running away to India to live out his days are more far-fetched than the idea of Elvis Presley living on a tropical island drinking Mai Tais right now. No one survives crucifixions. The Romans knew how to kill people. And the people in the ancient world didn't just disappear. Like, the idea of Jesus going off somewhere without... People in the ancient world were skeptical of strangers, had small towns, gossiped all the time. There's no way someone just, like, beat up and have holes in them, goes to a town and, and doesn't, you know, just fits right in, right? That doesn't happen. So a dead Jesus and an empty tomb. But a dead Jesus and an empty tomb, even if it's in the Bible, doesn't make a case for a resurrection. Someone could have stolen the body. The Bible does say that there's guards around the tomb, but let's play devil's advocate for a minute. Let's let's put our skeptic hat on and, and, and assume that Jesus died, but that someone stole the body, okay? There are two more significant pieces of evidence that point to something else going on. Let's start with the second piece, the witnesses. For 40 days between the event of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension when he was raised to go to heaven, 
He appeared to multiple people. He appeared to Mary and Clopas as they walked the 6.8-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. There's multiple accounts of Jesus talking and eating with the disciples. You've got Jesus revealing himself to Mary Magdalene and to James, the brother of Jesus, who wasn't even a follower of Jesus when Jesus was first alive. Paul mentions that Jesus was with over 500 people at the same time, 500 mixed people of men and women and likely children. People didn't get babysitters a lot back then. Okay, so this is a mixed community. And almost to say, 500 people saw this, plus the apostles, plus the women. If you have any doubts about this, just ask them. They'll tell you. These accounts point to the interesting detail that Jesus was Jesus, yet different. He was in the flesh. He still had scars of crucifixion, and he still ate food, something that angels and ghosts don't do, and yet he could disguise himself, like walking with a couple on the road to Emmaus. They don't realize it's him until later on. And he does things like walk through walls that are locked doors, and he teleports around. To be clear, Jesus isn't resuscitated in Scripture. It isn't a dead man brought back to life. He was truly dead, and then he was truly raised in a new, glorified, heavenly body. This is one way of reminding us that the physical world and our physical bodies are good. Our eternal future in Christ, if we put our faith in Jesus, is as an eternal, embodied, glorified existence. So Jesus is dead, and the grave is empty, and we have over 500 witnesses of Jesus walking around, talking, interacting, and eating with him. But suppose, a skeptic might say, suppose Jesus' followers were distressed, and suppose their grief and disappointment uh, in that state of sorrow, they, they made up or imagined the resurrection. It's a valid question. It just doesn't hold water, and here's why. Sociologists who study legends and myths will tell you that it takes generations to develop an accepted legend or a myth that moves from oral history to a singular, written, accepted, and unalterable story. In the beginning, the stories shift, and they change, and they morph. They go through periods of alteration and refinement, and only after a decades-long process do they become canonical or set in stone. Now, the Gospels are likely written 20 to 60 years, two to six decades after Jesus' resurrection. The Gospel of Luke, the one I was just reading from, was written down around 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, give or take five years. So, this idea of a legend or a myth could apply except for the fact that so many of those eyewitnesses were still alive. So you could actually ask them, was this a historical fact or not? Legends and myths in cultures are created as intentionally, let me enunciate here, ahistorical stories. Legends and myths are intentionally ahistorical stories that give reason for a, a culture's existence, 
give an explanation for things that happen in a society or a culture. They're, everyone knows that they're made up on purpose, but they give, you know, uh, you've got Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, and then Virgil comes along and writes the, uh, the Iliad, right? And, and why does he do that? To give a history of Rome that's really cool, but not many, I mean, nobody thinks that that's really the history of Rome, right? It's a story, it's a legend, it's a myth. But the real deal breaker to the theory that the resurrection account is a made-up legend or a myth is that the gospel accounts are not the earliest evidence. Paul was writing about the death and resurrection of Jesus decades prior to the gospels. So Lori Louise read from 1 Corinthians 15, and in that passage that she read, I don't know if you knew this or not, LL, but you read a creed. And this creed about the resurrection wasn't Paul's creed. Paul didn't invent it. It was a tradition passed down to Paul. And that means that the historical event of the resurrection was accepted as foundational to the church from very close to the beginning. Listen to what one expert has to say about this creed in 1 Corinthians 15. This kind of foundation story with which a community is not at liberty to tamper. It was probably formulated within the first two or three years after Easter itself, since it was already in formulaic form when Paul received it. We are here in touch with the earliest Christian tradition, with something that was being said two decades or more before Paul wrote this letter. So from a sociological point of view, legends and myths simply don't get into codified traditions and creeds, not even half as quickly as what happened in, in the Christian church. But for me, that's not even the most convincing evidence. We've already established that Jesus died. And we've already seen how unlikely it would be to have over 500 people conspire on a made-up story than to keep that story straight amongst themselves under the scrutiny of skeptics who could have asked them directly and to keep that story straight. I mean, a, a, a movement like that would die out in a generation. You just couldn't keep the story straight, right? And as we've seen how no one in the ancient world would have made up a story where the leading witnesses were women. But for me, the most convincing thing is that no one would have made up this story in the first place. Lots of false messiahs died on a cross. Did you know that? Jewish messiahs, people that, that rose up, like several of them were crucified before Jesus and after Jesus, it's historical fact, it's historically documented not just by Jewish sources, but by Roman sources. Do you know why no one made up stories about them rising from the dead, besides the fact that they didn't rise from the dead? Because there were no categories for that. No one thought that that was a thing that would happen, or that that was possible, or that it would be advantageous. Yes, prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures pointed to a time when God would return to the earth and judge the righteous, and judge the wicked, and on that day, at the very end of things, the wicked would be judged, and the righteous would be raised up out of the grave to a resurrected life. Everybody at the same time, but never did anyone expect for it to happen to one person before the end of the age. They just didn't have a worldview or a category to put something like that in. It wouldn't have made any sense for them to do something like that, or or to even make it up. 
First of all, no one would believe it. Second, there's no scenario in their world where making up a story about a crucified Messiah who is resurrected from the grave would advance their position or heal their broken hearts or make life better in any way, shape, or form. I think it would have died out in a generation, like I said before. Even if it was just misplaced devotion or a longing or a hoping that Jesus did rise from the dead. Unless something radical, something so unexpected, so life-changing actually happened. I mentioned Darwin's finches at the beginning of the message, but you don't have to go to the Galapagos to experience this phenomenon. Over in our own state, in the Olympic Peninsula, uh, lies Crescent Lake. Corey and I used to live over in Port Angeles. We visited Crescent Lake before. Uh, and around 9,000 years ago, a huge landslide uh, in the valley that drained into the Elwha River restricted the flow of water and formed Lake Crescent. It's now, today, it's over 600 feet deep. The result is that the trout and the cutthroat that were in that tributary that would flow through the river in that valley got stuck in Crescent Lake. The rainbow trout developed larger heads. They changed their color to help them survive in their new environment, and they only become rainbow-looking trout when they spawn. They became what we now call beardsley trout, a completely different thing. Meanwhile, Lake Crescent cutthroat trout also became another subspecies, developing different characteristics to help them survive against the larger beardsley trout. The two trout even spawn at different times of year in different parts of the lake to avoid each other. My point is that these trout did not change their behavior, their colors, their facial structure, the way that they hunt, the way that they reproduce, and then make up a story about a landslide happening. The landslide happened first and caused the change. You see what I'm saying? What would make law-abiding Jewish people, monotheists, who believed that you were only to worship Yahweh and that to worship anyone else was punishable by, by death, what would make those people all of a sudden, within one generation, within months after this happened, begin to worship a guy named Jesus who died on a cross? What would make them do that? And how would these people who were distraught, in grief, alone, in despair, how would they come to be the light of nations, the changer of cultures, the ones who brought us hospitals and schools and science and musical notation and so much more? How would they have formed the church? How would you be here right now? If Christ didn't rise from the dead, this is stupid. I got better things to do than wear this outfit. This is not the work of people who invented the resurrection. This is the work of the resurrected Jesus who broke into our world. This is the result of people who have encountered the risen Lord and were filled with his life-giving spirit. And in the end, history is the work of fitting together records of non... You, you notice that, right? Like, science, you can repeat experiments. In fact, to prove something, you need to, it needs to be repeatable. History is not science. History, you take the evidence of non-repeatable facts. You can't have George Washington give a speech again or Abraham Lincoln. You can't do that. So you take evidence, written and oral, and you piece the pieces together, and you say, what is the most plausible, reasonable way to tell the story? That's what we're 
That's what we're doing here. And for me, and for billions of people over the course of human history, the resurrection of Jesus makes the most sense out of the historical data. The hope of the resurrection isn't stuck in the truth of the past. The hope is founded upon the risen and reigning Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the hope of nations, the author of new creation. The risen and reigning one still touches us today. Ask Chuck if he still touches us today. Ask Chuck if he's still alive today. If you are desperate in need of some hope, if you are longing for new life, if you came here hoping for more than some good advice and a pep talk, then I invite you to come to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, they call this thing we do following you a faith on the news. And it does take faith. It does take faith. And at the same time, I am thankful that it is not the kind of faith often caricatured in the news. It's not a blind faith. It's not an uninformed faith. And I'm thankful, Lord, for faithful witnesses who have passed down to us these traditions, this history, these eyewitness accounts. I'm thankful for your Holy Spirit that resonates within us, that says, yes, these things are true. And I'm thankful that you are, that the resurrection isn't something that, that just happens once a long time ago uh, for the history books, but that you are still alive and active in our lives. And I pray for my sisters, my brothers, myself, that you would reach us, Lord, today, that you would show yourself alive and active in our lives Bring us to the place of, of repentance, of, of, of laying down our, our sin, our shame, our autonomy, our best attempts at figuring things out. Help us to surrender those things to you, Lord, and fill us with your life today. In Jesus' name, amen.